This morning we're going to continue on in our meditation through the prophet Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, for the man who does this, any to witness or answer, or to bring an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this again you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor at your hand. You ask, why does he not? Because the Lord has witness to the covenant between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Has not the one God made and sustained for us the spirit of life? And what does he desire? Godly offspring. So take heed to yourselves and let none be faithless to the wife of his youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and covering one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to yourselves and do not be faithless. I neglected to say in my welcome that we have a reception right after this service for visitors who would have an extra five minutes right through those double doors and in the overflow room there. So I hope that some of you can stay and give us a chance to get to know you. Last week, in verse 8, of this chapter, we observed that the failure of the priestly ministry, that is, the ministry of the word, resulted in the stumbling of many people. It says in verse 8, you have turned aside from the way, speaking to the priests, the pastors, and you have caused many to stumble by your instruction." Now, what we have today in verses 10 to 16 of chapter 2 are uh, illustrations of stumbling, I believe. The kind of life that people fall into when the ministry of the word is not holding them in the way. Let me point out three areas of life that this text addresses. First, in verse 10, it says, Why then are we faithless to one another? So the issue here is relationships in general and covenant breaking or or not keeping promises or not keeping faith or not keeping trust in our general relationships. The next sphere is verses 11 and 12 where the issue is marriage to unbelievers 
It says, Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. In verse 11. In other words, the men of Judah, in choosing their wives, were choosing women who did not love the true God, but worshipped false gods. And the third sphere that this text addresses is in verses 13 to 16, and the issue here is divorce. And verse 16 makes plain God's animosity toward this phenomenon. He says, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, those are three big spheres of life, big issues. And we could talk for hours and books have been written. So I have wrestled with how do I narrow it down into 25 minutes. And uh, here's what I want to do. I just want to state as clearly as I can what the plain, explicit will of God is in each of these three spheres. And then unfold for you in what time we have the reasons for why God says we should obey his will in these areas. There are three temptations that I hope I can help you have strength to avoid. The temptation to be faithless in your general relationships, your promise-keeping, your oath-taking, your contracts. Secondly, the temptation to marry an unbeliever. And thirdly, the temptation to pursue a divorce. Now, that leaves many questions unanswered. For example... What if someone breaks trust with me? What do I do? Breaks contract with me. Or what do I do if my child marries an unbeliever? Or what do I do if my spouse forsakes me? Pursues me for divorce. Now, the Bible has something to say in all of those areas. And I hope that over the um, long haul of our life together as pastor and people, the whole range of biblical truth and the whole range of human need can be addressed as God gives us wisdom and guidance. And as you pray that I have his mind in preaching. But today, I have just a small goal. State the will of God that is explicit and on the face of the text. And then give some of the reasons that the text gives to strengthen our resolve to follow through with the obedience of this will. You could call it back surgery this morning. I want to do some back surgery. You remember, those of you who are members, that uh, a little over a year ago, a high school friend of mine that I hadn't seen for 20 years, named Nancy, came to the Twin Cities for back surgery. She had severe scoliosis. And Fairview downtown here is one of the best places in the country to get an operation of that kind. And they put two steel rods right up her back. And the goals, of course, were, one, to enable her to have upright posture. And two, to relieve some of the pain. And three, to make her back stronger. Now, that's the kind of back surgery I want to do this morning. I've got some steel rods in this text. They're called the Word of God or the truth of God. The will of God and its reasons are like steel rods. And I don't intend them to be spears this morning, okay? Can we settle that from the outset? I don't intend them to be spears. I intend them to be 
rods that I would like to engage in whatever surgical skill God has given me to insert them right up your moral backbone to accomplish three things. To accomplish the alleviation of pangs of guilt past and even more so in the future through disobedience and to give you an upright moral posture and to make your backbone strong in a world of compromise. So that's the goal of my back surgery this morning. And would you go with me now into the operating room together? Verse 10, the general relationships of our lives. The will of God is stated and three reasons in this verse are given. Let's read the verse. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. Now the will of God is plain, right? Don't be faithless to each other. That is, don't break promises. Don't forsake covenants. Don't break uh, contracts in your dealings with, with one another. And the, the Hebrew word here is very significant. It's a little word, bagat, break covenant or act faithlessly or deal treacherously. It can be translated in all those ways. But the underlying meaning of this word is the letting down of somebody that you have an agreement with. It runs right through the text in all three spheres. Verse 10, why are we faithless to one another? Referring to general untrustworthiness. Verse 11, Judah has been faithless. Referring to the marrying of foreign gods, uh, the daughters of foreign gods. And verse 14, you have been faithless to the wife of your youth. In reference to divorce. And you can see it at the end of verse 15. Don't be faithless to the wife of your youth. And verse 16, don't be faithless at the end there. So this word is used five times in seven verses. It runs right through all three spheres. The sin that is like a, an ugly chain or cord that runs right through these three spheres of life is the, the sin of untrustworthiness, of covenant breaking, of commitment letdowns, of dishonesty, of breaking faith. Now, if you stop and think about this for a moment, what Malachi is really doing here is describing for us two kinds of community life, two ways that a church or a neighborhood or a nation can try to structure its community life, the network of its relationships. Let me describe the two ways that are implied in the condemnation of bagad, that is, dealing faithlessly, and the exaltation of covenant. I would call the first way of ordering our life together as a church, and it applies to family and all the other kinds of relationships, would be called covenantal order. I just thought that up. Covenantal order. The ordering by means of covenants and promises and oaths and agreements and contracts. And the very fabric of this uh, community is covenant keeping, word keeping, promise keeping, contract keeping, faithfulness 
to your relationships. And a community survives and has life when people can be counted on. But of course, the fabric and the tapestry of life begins to unravel when people don't keep their contracts, when they let you down and don't keep their word, when you can't count on what they say, everything falls apart. I mean, if you're driving down the road and you don't know if people are going to obey the stop sign or uh, stay on the right side of the road, everything comes apart. Absolutely everything in society is built upon covenant keeping, keeping of the social contracts and the agreements that we make with one another. Children to parents in a covenant of obedience and care. Husband to wife and wife to husband in a covenant of of humble and godly leadership and uh, faithful honoring of the husband. A covenant of of employee and employer in faithful work and, and honest wage. Covenant of citizen to state in a, a covenant of loyalty and uh, protection. The whole range of human relationships is to be ordered, according to this text, by getting rid of bagat, dealing falsely, forsaking covenants. Now, what's the alternative? What kind of life is commended when the fabric begins to unravel? I would describe it as the disorder of self-indulgence. Not the order of covenant keeping, but the disorder of self-indulgence. The, the old patterns of making covenants and promises and agreements and contracts and keeping them at all costs vanishes, gets diluted. And what do you have in its place? Not a fabric anymore, but individual, individualistic strands of self-seeking, self-indulgence, private pleasure-seeking. And the fabric of the community, the church, the, the nation, will come apart. The moral fabric unravels when that's the way we approach life. Now, Malachi's message, then, in general, this is a, just a general statement, is that we are to be the kind of people who make and keep covenants with one another. And it could be as simple as, I'll meet you at five. You take that seriously. I'll be there tomorrow. I'll put this in the bank for you. I'll tell the boss that you won't be here. When you say a sentence like that, does anything weigh on your heart? Covenant keeping makes the community hold together. And so Malachi warns us against the pseudo-freedom of individualistic self-indulgence. None of you, I don't think, wants to unravel your family or your church or your nation or this city by being a covenant breaker. There are three reasons, I said, in the verse for why we should be faithful to our commitments. Number one, have we not all one father? We're at verse 10. Have we not all one father? In other words, in the Christian community or at that time in Israel, God is our father, which means that when you break a trust, when you uh, break a contract, don't keep a promise, you're sinning against your own flesh. And your father is being dishonored. 
who wills that there be peace and shalom and covenant order in the family. Second reason, has not one God created us? Second phrase there in verse 10, has not one God created us? Now, what what does that imply? If I lie to you, or if I uh, break faith with you, or if I don't keep my word, or break a contract with you, you know what I'm really saying? If you bring God into the picture, and he must be brought in, you're saying, in effect, uh, I have one creator who has an agenda for my life that permits uh, self-indulgence and the ignoring of your rights and the pursuit of my own uh, emotional satisfaction at your expense. But you have another creator who has another agenda because you can't treat me that way. You have to respect my rights and stay off my case, okay? Do you see the craziness of that? That's just not right because there is only one creator and therefore one standard for people. We can't mistreat and abuse one another and then not expect it to come back to us the same way. And yet that's the way we always are. We don't want people to treat us by breaking contracts with us. And yet we may feel free to break contracts with them. So the second reason is one creator. And third reason at the end of the verse, why then are we faithless to one another? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. Profaning the covenant of our fathers. What what does that refer to? Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in this context, probably. And what covenant was made with Abraham? The great Abrahamic covenant of I will be your God and I will be with you and I will make you great. I'll meet your needs. I'll give you hope. I'll give you life. The great blessings of Abraham and every one of us in this room who knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and banks our hope on his promises and follows in the path that he has set for us. Our children of Abraham, because we're grafted into Jesus, who is the seed of Abraham. And so this text applies to us, too. When we don't keep our promises, when we break faith, when we abandon contracts, when we forsake covenants, we profane the covenant. Now, why? Why is that so? How does this work? Doesn't it work like this? The covenant promises your help. It promises life. It promises that God will be with you. He'll give you what's best for you. He'll take care of you. But when you say, well, now, if I, if I follow through with this commitment, I'm going to be miserable. And therefore, you break the commitment. You're saying God can't take care of you. You profane the covenant promises of God. Abandoning the path of covenant keeping because you'll be happier outside the path is blackballing God. A vote of no confidence. A profaning of His covenant. Because God says, I will help you. I'll be with you. I'll take care of you and strengthen you. I will provide all your needs according to the riches of my Son in glory. You don't need to abandon your commitments and your covenants in order to make it in this life. You see how it's a profaning of the covenant. So those are the three reasons given for why we should be covenant keepers at Bethlehem, in our families, and in our work, and in our nation. Number one, um, it profanes the covenant. Number two, we have one creator. And number three, 
we have one father. Sphere number two, verses 11 and 12, marriage to unbelievers. Malachi says this is an abomination and that it is a being faithless. Let's read verse 11. Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary or literally has profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, the primary issue here is clearly that this woman uh, has another god besides Jehovah. The issue is not international or interracial marriage. That is not the issue. It's a religious issue. She is the daughter of a foreign god. She is not the daughter of the true god. She believes in another god or doesn't believe in any god. And the text says it is a profaning of the holiness of God to marry her. If I say I love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, he is my treasure and my portion to know him and to follow him and to be with him forever is my greatest hope. But I will cultivate a romantic relationship with a woman who knows him not, cares not for him, does not trust him and does not obey him and therefore brings reproach upon him. I'm a liar. And I am profaning the holiness of the God I claim to love. When I undertake to form the most intimate, personal union on the earth with someone who brings reproach upon my God through unbelief. It's an abomination. And verse 12 says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, for the man who does this, any to witness or answer, or to bring an offering to the Lord of hosts. And that's a grave warning, unmarried young people. The text does not say, let's make sure we don't hear too much here. The text does not say that it's impossible for an unbelieving spouse to be converted. We know that's not true from experience, praise the Lord. And we know it's not true from the Bible. Because 1 Peter 3.1 says, if you live together with an unbeliever, so live as to win the unbeliever. Second thing it does not say is as it does not say that if you are married to an unbeliever, you should get out. And keep yourself pure and uncontaminated. There was a church 500 years after this was written, the church at Corinth, that drew that conclusion and started forsaking their marriages when one got converted and the other didn't. They started pulling out and Paul, the apostle, had to write a letter right away and with a stinging rebuke say, don't you dare pull out of those marriages. They don't contaminate you. You sanctify them. You stay right there in that marriage unless they insist on going. Let's just look at what the text does say. It does say, if your choice of a marriage partner lies yet in front of you, don't marry an unbeliever. Let me get the attention of the kids for a minute. Punch them, okay? And tell them to look up here and stop drawing for a moment. Gotcha? 
Now, if you can understand me, then you're old enough to listen to what I say in the next minute. I want all the kids to take real seriously this because of something that happened to me when I was a kid. I want you to say to yourself, I will never marry a person who doesn't love Jesus. I will never fall in love with a person who doesn't love Jesus. And make it a promise and covenant to God. Now, the reason I, I say that to the kids is because I can remember a time, and I, I can't remember whether it was 12 or 13, right in there, when I was so overwhelmed with this issue that I said to God and made a kind of pact, I will never cultivate a romantic relationship with an unbelieving girl. And I will never marry an unbeliever. And I believe God honored that little 13-year-old pact, so much so that I was spared many pangs and, I believe, was given a family of satisfaction and joy as great as any I've ever seen. So I commend to you, if you are not yet married, make that your covenant with God, not to marry an unbeliever. Third, the third section is verses 13 to 16, and the issue now is divorce. In verse 16, God says, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And I'm only going to take a few parts from this text. Verse 15 is a very difficult verse. Your version and the one that was read might have been totally different. My guess is it was. And I'm going to leave that verse for another time. It simply gives more reasons for why not to divorce. But there are enough reasons in what is plain in this text that we need not fret over passing over verse 15. In verse 13, God is refusing to accept the offerings of these people who are weeping over the altar. And they ask, why not? Why doesn't he receive them? In verse 14, and here's the answer. Because the Lord, this is verse 14, the Lord was a witness to the covenant between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. There's that word again, by God. Faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So the first reason given for why God hates divorce and was not receiving the offerings of men who had forsaken their wives is that marriage is a covenant. The life together of married people is not rooted in the sand of emotional satisfaction. It is rooted in the rock of covenant loyalty. And we just need to do in our society today some shifting of our thinking about this matter. Life together as a married couple is not rooted in the sand of emotional satisfaction. It is rooted in the rock of covenant loyalty. Now, what kind of covenant 
does God have in view here? It's a very serious one. And he says two things about it that point out its seriousness. The first one is here in the beginning of verse 14. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. And he has in mind there, I believe, the covenant, as the RSV translates. The Lord was witness to the covenant between you and the wife of your youth. I, John, take you, Noel, to be my wife. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your faithful husband as long as we both shall live. There is no more sacred sentence on the face of the earth than that sentence. And the reason given in this verse for why that covenant sentence is elevated to the point where it is, is that God stood there in Barnesville, Georgia, at my right hand, as real as he has stood anywhere on the earth. God stood there and listened as Noel and I 19 years ago swore covenant faithfulness to each other. Now, what does that mean? What does the witness of God to that covenant mean? Is God just passively looking on? Oh, I saw that. No, he is not a passive onlooker. When God witnesses to a covenant, he says, I have seen this. I confirm this. I record this in heaven. And by my presence and my purpose, I confer upon this covenant the dignity of being an image of my covenant with my wife. The people of God, the church. The basic meaning of marriage in the Bible, the most fundamental thing you can say about the meaning of marriage is that it is a covenant ordained of God to image forth the covenant between God and his people. And therefore, to break covenant is to say a lie about God. That's why he hates divorce. That's the fundamental bottom line for why God hates divorce. The breaking of that covenant is the breaking of the mirror of his own covenant with the church. Now, we know from Ephesians 5 that that's the image of marriage that Paul develops. The husband is like Christ and the bride or the wife is like the church. And they are covenantally related as Christ and the church. Here's what it says about God and the, the people of God in the Old Testament. I plighted my troth to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine. Now, the fellowship may be broken. There may be exile and separation. There may be anger and tears. Did you know that God's marriage was like that? Anger, tears, separation, agonies. That's the marriage that God has with his people. 
And the sum of the matter is given in Isaiah 54, 5. Your maker is your husband. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you. But with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing wrath for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you says the Lord, your Redeemer. God has never, nor will he ever, nullify his covenant union with his wife, the church. Christ has never, nor will he ever, break covenant. With his bride, the church. And the fundamental reason why God hates divorce is that it is a breaking of what is supposed to be an image of the unbreakable. Now I close by just looking out at you and knowing where you are. You're everywhere on the scale today, aren't you? Some of you are so happy in marriage. I can see it in some of you. Some of you are sitting alone. Some of you are in the midst of a, a, midst of a, a tortuous marriage. Some of you are broken and separated. Some, the divorce is over. She or he has married another. Some have remarried. We're right across the board. Some have let down in contracts. Some have lied to friends. Some are planning a marriage to an unbeliever. We're all over the scale, aren't we, this morning? What are we going to do? There are two sounds that come from Sinai, Mount Sinai. One is a loud crack of thunder. I hate divorce. There's another sound that comes from Sinai. We don't even have to go to Calvary to hear it, though it was shouted most loudly from Calvary. Here's the way it sounded coming from Mount Sinai. I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness showing steadfast love to thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so my closing this morning is to invite you to a covenant God who will start over wherever you are, who will wipe that slate absolutely clean this morning if you bank your hope on him in Jesus Christ who loved himself and gave himself for sinners. Give yourself to Christ. Cancel out the past by his blood. Set yourself in covenant relationship to God. Hear the promise, I will be your God. I will be for you. I will work for you. I will give you the strength. And then from this moment on, depend on him. Depend on him to keep your promises 
in the business world, in the family life, in the state, in the neighborhood. Depend on him for the strength not to marry an unbeliever. And depend on him for the strength not to divorce the spouse of your covenant. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to help us keep these commitments. Shall we stand together? Father, I pray that the surgery will be successful. That none of these rods will wrench out of place and penetrate the lung. But rather that the rod, the unbreakable rod of your word, will fit perfectly by faith against the moral backbone of this people and that they would be given an upright moral posture, that they would be spared the pangs of the disobedience of scoliosis and that they would have strength in a world of compromise and covenant breaking. I ask it in Jesus' name and for the glory of his covenant. And all the people said, Amen.